I'm going to tell you a familiar story. My suspicion is all of you know this story and know it well. You were told, many of you, if you grew up in America, uh, and especially if you grew up in a church, you heard this story a lot. And that's the story of David and Goliath. You remember the story of David and Goliath? David is the small shepherd boy that goes up to meet his brothers on the front lines of battle. When he gets there, he finds that the army of Israel, uh, which is what he was on, his brothers were on, they were on one side of a hill, uh, just crippled by fear, and on the other side of the Philistines. And twice a day, morning and evening, this big giant would come out and taunt uh, the Israelites that were just crippled by fear, and he would invite them to come in battle, and of course, the Israelites wouldn't. Well, David goes up there, and he sees Goliath do this as he's there. And David is enraged when he sees Goliath doing this. He wonders why the Israelites have not gone out to take care of not only Goliath, but the rest of them. He calls them an uncircumcised Philistine and who speaks against the armies of the living God. Uh, so unlike the other Israelites, that scrawny little shepherd boy, David, uh, is incensed and goes out to challenge Goliath. And uh, he brings his intimidating weapons of five smooth stones and a sling. And of course, the second Goliath sees him, just like we all would, he sort of laughs at David. He's a tiny little boy. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, and David begins to fire back. Well, of course, Goliath is making more fun of the armies of the living God. And David fires back to Goliath and says, you come to me with sword and with spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel whom you have defied. And then he goes on to say that he's gonna beat him and he tells us why. He says, I'm going to beat you, as it were, in order that all the earth and this assembly might know that there's a God in Israel. And of course, we know the rest of the story. David slings the stone, and with one rock, down goes Goliath. With all of the odds against him, down he goes. And we learn from that story many, many things. This is not the point of that passage, but one thing we learn about David is that he wasn't a hypocrite. When it came to his faith in God, he was not two-faced in his confession of God. And the way that we know that is because he was willing to go and confront and acknowledge the name of God in the face of not only one enemy, but in the midst of the throngs of that assembly. We learn that David was not a hypocrite. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus is going to teach us this morning in Luke 12, 1 to 12, as we continue our series of the King and the Kingdom. Here, take a look at that. Luke 12, 1 to 12. I'm sorry, Joey. I'm like literally standing on a step back here. Luke 12, 1 to 12. In the meantime, says, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the private room shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. 
but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Big idea that we learn from this passage, friends, is the, is the fact that fearfulness destroys hypocrisy. Fearfulness destroys hypocrisy. In particular, the fearfulness of God destroys the fearfulness of man that drives hypocrisy. That's what we see in David uh, when he faced Goliath. That's what we see in this passage. And so here, the scene is unlike anything we've seen in America in at least two and a half, three months right? Throngs of people. It says they're stepping on top of each other. So many people around. Jesus's ministry has captivated the throngs because Jesus speaks as one who has authority, not like, not like the other scribes and Pharisees. And he has shown this authority, not only in his teaching ministry, that's the most important part. He would tell you that, but also the way in which his authority has been manifested in the miracles. The miracles are the previews of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, Right? So the miracles are often ascribed as just ways to, to associate to Jesus' divinity. It's much more than that. They're previews of the kingdom. So he's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. And most amazing of all, to the people in view there, he's forgiving sin. The throngs love to watch him, but as we will see, they don't love Jesus for Jesus. He's sort of a good show, like on Netflix. They like watching him. They're entertained by him, and maybe they get a little intellectual stimulation along the way. And so with the crowds pressing in around them, we can imagine all the crowds. Remember, he just finished last week rebuking those Pharisees and the lawyers at the dinner party. There they are out in the crowds pressing around them. And Jesus turns to his disciples amidst these crowds and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven, of course, is an ingredient that you put inside of dough to permeate throughout that dough that it would rise. And so Jesus doesn't want the leaven of the Pharisees to permeate throughout the disciples. He doesn't want that uh, leaven to rise inside of them. And of course, what is the leaven? He says there in verse 1, it's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We thought about hypocrisy last week when Jesus confronts those lawyers, scribes, and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Uh, And the problem that we saw, if you remember, is their external religion, sort of using God in order to, uh, that, that it was void of any internal love for God. Public religion in the name of God, void of any love for God or neighbor. That's what we saw last week. They majored on public religion to the neglect of any private or internal love for God and neighbor. Uh, You recall the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. They talked about symbols, noisy gongs. That's what these guys were like. They were beautiful instruments, and when you hit them, they were noisy and obnoxious on the inside. They were clean on the outside, as Jesus says, dirty on the end. They were dead men walking. Jesus rebuked them, and then he's saying here to these guys, now he's moved the conversation in the midst of the throngs from those Pharisees and those lawyers to now he's warning his disciples. Make sure this leaven doesn't get inside of you. And in the rest of this passage, Jesus gives motivations for them to not be hypocrites, to not be having this uh, leaven get throughout them, permeate throughout them. Three things we see there in which he gives motivations. First off, verses two and three, 
Don't be a hypocrite. Don't let this leaven get out on, in on you because the reality is, verse 2 and 3, everything that you say, think, and do in private, it's going to get revealed anyway. Nothing is covered up. There's no point in even playing the game of hypocrisy. There's no point in acting like a Christian when God sees and reveals those actions that are not in keeping with it and you know you're not. There's no point in trying to play the game of uh, hypocritical Christianity. And the obvious thought, though, that then rises, like, all right, if I don't do it, if I'm not just playing a game of Christianity here, but instead I start actually speaking up in public about this and I'm the real thing, what's the thing that you're going to fear? More than likely, you're going to fear man and what they might do to you when you do this. Well, that's what he addresses next. He understands the cost of this true, authentic Christianity and the way that it manifests itself in public and in private. So he says, uh, the second thing he says there, the second motivation, my friends, don't fear them. Don't fear men. The worst they can do is kill you. That's, in, that's what he's saying there. And instead, Jesus says, fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. In other words, don't fear man, fear God, because God can actually do something after death, whereas man can do nothing. Fear the greater authority, Jesus is saying. Don't fear the lesser authority. And so in order to fear less of man, we must learn to be fearful of Christ. And then the third reason you need to be motivated to not be a hypocrite, Jesus gives us, is by recalling that five birds are, full, are sold for a couple cents, as it were. And then he goes on to say, none of them, none of those sparrows are forgotten by God. And you, remember this disciples, that would be you disciples even today, you are more valuable than they are. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a, hypocrite. Don't be a two-faced follower of God. One, because everything you say in private is going to get revealed in public. Two, you don't need to fear man, fear God because he has more authority. Third, he's got you because you're valuable to him. He loves you. And then he goes on to say, therefore, verse 8 to 10, that leads to what he says there. So go ahead, speak up. Speak of me in public. Speak to me. Tell people about me. Acknowledge me. Swear allegiance to me, knowing it's going to cost you. And assuming you do, Jesus goes on to say in those verses, 8 to 10, I'll acknowledge you in heaven. He says, to, I'll acknowledge you to the angels. In other words, you're going to be acknowledged again in heaven. And even this amazing verse, even if you deride me, I'll forgive you. You seek forgiveness in me. You still have a home in heaven. But if you don't acknowledge me before men, if you persistently deny the Holy Spirit work to lead you away from the love of man to the love of God, then, verse 5, you'll be cast into hell. Or as Jesus says again there in verse 9, you won't be acknowledged in heaven. Finally, then Jesus gives uh, the assurance, some assurance to his disciples amidst this. I'm sure they're sort of, you know, a little concerned at this point about all the implications of what he's saying in these motivations to not be hypocrites. Uh, he gives that assurance in verses 11 to 12 that you don't need to worry about what to say or how to defend yourself when, and I do say when, you get drugged before authorities on account of speaking of me in the public. You don't need to worry about it. He says in essence there, the Holy Spirit's got you. He's gonna tell you what to say. He's gonna tell you what to do. Uh, and how you should act, what you should say. He's going to take care of you in those times. Because remember, you're going to be taken care of because you remember, you're more valuable than the sparrows. So I'll take care of you. Don't worry about that. You don't need to be thinking about those things. Beware of the leaven. 
Beware of the hypocrisy of the fakeness of Pharisees. Be the real thing because God's going to reveal everything in the end. God's stronger than man and you're more valuable to him than man. So speak up. Make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. And God will take care of everything else because you're valuable. All right, that's the passage. That's the point of the passage. But let's scratch a little deeper at hypocrisy, shall we? Asking and answering why anyone would want to be a hypocrite in the first place. Why do these Pharisees go through the motions? Why might we go through the motions of external Christianity when we're dead on the inside? Because I think by scratching that a little deeper, by learning the answer to that, we're going to be more able to beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. And then secondly, I think we'll be more apt to be more courageous the more that we are aware of what's going on at the anatomy level, at the heart level of hypocrisy. Now, you recall last week when we considered this that I said Jesus hates hypocrisy for two reasons. One, because it lies about God, and two, because it lies about his gospel. Right? But again, why would the Pharisees, why might we be willing to lie to the Lord and lie about ourselves? That's what hypocrisy is, right? We're lying even to ourselves. Why? What's going on at the heart level? Well, looking back at last week's passage in Luke eleven forty three, remember, look over there now. We saw there that the Pharisees, they get the best seats in the synagogues and they're greeted in the marketplace as a result of their hypocrisy. In other words, what Jesus was saying to them is they're hypocrites because they use their public religion in order to get love, praise, or affirmed from man. Another way of thinking about this is for these Pharisees, for these hypocrites, God was a shovel and the praise of man was the jewel they used to try to get it. And so here Jesus digs deeper at hypocrisy by highlighting the reality that two-faced religion gets exposed. God has more authority than man. Therefore, we ought to acknowledge Christ before man. We must live for him, not for man. So here's what we're learning at the anatomy level, at the heart level of hypocrisy. What Jesus seems to be driving at is false worship. That's the anatomy of hypocrisy. Hypocrites use people in order to eventually love themselves. Hypocrisy, in other words, replaces God with man. They worship man and themselves, by extension, in the place of God. That's what's going on in the heart. Now, to be clear, they're probably not consciously thinking about all of this, but that seems to be Jesus' assessment of the heart. Instead of being satisfied with God, and loving their fellow man, they use God and man to get what their heart loves the most and worships themselves. That's the anatomy, again, of hypocrisy. It's false worship. It's idolatry of man. It fears man more than God. And Jesus is teaching us here that you've got to beware of that. You can't let that get in on you. And what's the antidote then if that's the problem? What's the antidote? If the problem is we fear man more than we fear God, what's the antidote? Well, we've got to fear God more than man. Jesus' answer is not by trying to fear less. Get that. It's not trying to fear less. It's trying to fear more. Fear God more. Take a look at verse 4. Don't fear man. The most he can do is kill you. Instead, fear him who can, after death, cast you into hell. Jesus says, don't fear man. Fear God. Fear him. Because, again, he gives those two reasons. He has more authority than man. He has greater love than man. And everything's going to get exposed. We say three reasons. And so, 
Let me give a, just a, a quick sort of step aside to give a better definition of when I say we have to fear God more than man. What do I mean by fear God? Well, just to be clear, I don't mean that we need to be scared of him. Kind of. I want to hang on to a little bit of that. Right? By fear God, I mean be in awe of him. Great example of this is uh, an old member at the beginning of our church used to fly jets and he invited me out to go watch the F-22, which he was a pilot of. And I saw these F-22 and I saw these uh, stealth bombers that day. And I remember saying to, they flew over there, they were loud, they were very intimidating. And I remember saying to my wife, I am so glad that they're on my team, you know, and I'm on their team because those things are super intimidating. And that's kind of the idea that's going out, what it means to fear God. See, we are in awe, right? That jet, I was in awe of its power, of its authority, what it was capable of. But I was quieted to know we're together. We're in the same kingdom. I don't have to be fearful of what it might do to me to hurt me. That's kind of the idea, right? That God is great. He's like that F-22. He's powerful. He's authoritative. He's awesome. But he's ours. He's ours. So man, therefore, is an ant in comparison to that F-22, right? How do you defeat idolatrous hypocrisy of man-centered religion? By fearing God more, by seeing God for who he is, by seeing what he's like and how much he loves us. Fearfulness destroys hypocrisy. When you love God and fear God more than you love and fear man or yourself, you'll stand up under the scrutiny and be seen as the real thing. I love the way that Kristen Wetherill puts it in her book, Fight Your Fear. She says, quote, the more we learn to treasure Jesus, the less we will treasure the world. And the less we treasure the world, the less we will fear what we may not have in it as we consider Jesus the all-sufficient, always enough for us Savior. So maybe let me bring all of this together in an illustration to kind of tighten this up for us. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Andy and I were watching the movie For Love or Money on Netflix, if you have it. Uh, The movie's early 90s movie, Michael J. Fox is in it. Michael J. Fox is a concierge in this fancy hotel, and he's got this great dream where he wants to build a hotel, a big fancy hotel. That's his dream. And he goes to this business tycoon with his business plan to, to give him a bunch of money to build the, to build the uh, hotel. But the guy says, I like the plan. The, ty- the tycoon says, I like the plan, but I'm not going to give you a final decision. I'm not going to give you the money. And so Michael J. Fox feels the need to do whatever the tycoon wants to get his money. Well, it turns out the biggest tycoon is a big-time jerk. He's a hypocrite. He's married, but he's also having an affair with a girl that Michael J. Fox happens to like. And so the rub of the movie then is that Michael J. Fox has to spend a lot of time with the mistress in order to allow the business tycoon to keep up his hypocrisy, his appearances. And he's, of course, Michael J. Fox is happy to do this because he wants the money from the business tycoon and he likes the gal. But he can't have both, and he knows that. And there's the title of the movie, For Love or Money. Will he choose money by going along with the hypocrisy of the business tycoon, or will he choose love by exposing the hypocrisy of the business tycoon and get the girl that he wants, hopefully? Well, you can guess what happens. He chooses the girl. He chooses the girl. And here's the fun thing about the movie. If you, don't, if you haven't seen it and you want to wait to watch, turn this off, but... Here's what happens. He winds up, not only does he get the girl, he winds up getting the money too from this other source that he wasn't expecting. 
So in that movie, we see that the, the business tycoon, he's the antagonist of the story. He's the bad guy of the story. He's, and the reason why is because he's a hypocrite. He uses, he's two-faced. He uses everyone he, around him for himself. And Michael J. Fox's character, he's the protagonist. He's the good guy in the story because he's willing to lose his dream out of a greater love. He's willing to lose his dream to pursue a greater love. He is more fee- fearful of the thought of not having his love of this gal than he is his own selfish dream of this uh, hotel. And guys, we love these movies because not only does Michael J. Fox get his love and not only because he gets the dream that he didn't expect, but the other reason we like these movies is because we like, when, we like it when the hypocrite, hypocrite gets the mess on him, right? Comes back on him. He gets exposed. For those three reasons, we love those kinds of movies. We must, friends, in the same way, learn from this passage the same things going on here. We must see the themes are similar, right? We got to be willing to lose some of our dreams. We got to be willing to lose public acceptance of mankind because of the awe-inspiring love of God. We have to want that more than everything else, so we're willing to lose everything else for it. And when we do, Listen, don't lose sight of this. Just like in the movie, when we do that, when we fear God and we want the awe-inspiring love of God more than we love, want the love of man or the praise of man or ourself, what winds up happening is not only do we get God, but we get a better version of those dreams that we had. That's why we love these movies so much because they press in on a deeper reality. Hypocrisy, friends, tries to control people in order to get the love of people in the now and they wind up never getting either in the end. Yet true devotion to Christ, authentic Christianity, loves God more than men, so they're willing to take the pain, the suffering, in order to pursue the greater love of God. And the beautiful thing is, is not only do we get the love of God, our, God, God himself, that's what we want the most, but he throws in heaven as well. How about that? So think about this. Hebrews 10, 32 to 35 lays this out beautifully. Hebrews 10, 32 to 35 says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since, here's why, you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. In other words, friends, love God more than you love man, as is evidenced by your willingness to lose face, suffer, and serve others in his name. And not only do you get your heart's desire, you get the better possession of heaven thrown in. So we beware of the leaven of hypocritical Christianity. How do we know it? When we fear man more than we fear God. When we use God to get things from man. How do we overcome it? By fearing God more than man. How do we do that? I've already mentioned them, but just briefly, by our rehearsing the fact that God sees all things and will expose all things. By secondly, seeing that God has more authority than man. And thirdly, by knowing that we are more valuable to him. And so what I want to do here for the next maybe seven minutes is take each of those three things and just try to 
fan the flame of those ideas to grow them in our hearts. In other words, let's try to do a little bit of the work of growing in our fear of God so as to not have us fear man by teasing and just considering those realities, those three realities that Jesus gives us. So the first thing we can do to grow in our fear of God and not be hypocrites is the rehearsing the fearfulness of God's omniscience. Rehearsing the fearfulness of God's omniscience. Omniscience means that God is all-knowing. Again, verse 2 and 3. And by the way, isn't that good to know about this COVID crisis? God is not unaware. He didn't know that this, he knew this was going to happen. But anyway, verse 2 and 3, again, nothing's covered up, covered up that's not going to be revealed. He already knows it all. It's going to get exposed. So rehearse his omniscience. That seems to be one of the devices Jesus gives to motivate us. God hears all things because God sees all things because God knows all things. All right, we can think about that little line that those of us in America grew up singing, right? When Santa Claus comes to town. Do you remember that one? Right? We, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Uh, he knows when you are bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. So we take the mythical figure of Santa Claus, right? And we have to then have, because of the fact that we know, well, because that mythical nature of Santa Claus, we then have trouble thinking that God might be like that. But folks, God can see all things, and he does. He made the world. He is so great that he cannot be contained by the world. Therefore, it is only right that he would know all things in the world, including our private words. God is not limited by time, space, geography, or intelligence since he is of forever. Therefore, he is capable of knowing all things, which would then mean that he would be capable of revealing all that from the housetops. But it's important that you know, friends, that God is not like Santa Claus in the sense that he is not up there tallying all of our goods and bads, weighing, weighing them out on some measurement, standing over us, just sort of wagging the second we get something wrong. God is not like that. He is not like that. He can know all of our thoughts. He's able to reveal them to the world. So why would we fear man who can do none of these things? My wife knows my thoughts more than anybody else, but she doesn't even come close to the knowledge that God has of all of my thoughts. God knows them all. He'll bring them to light. And so we got to see God, rehearse the fact in our hearts and minds. We've got to rehearse the fact that God sees everything. Don't just know that with your mind. Taste it. Secondly, re rehearse the fearfulness of God's authority. We rehearse God's omniscience, Jesus tells us. And secondly, we rehearse the fearfulness of God's authority. Again, verses four and five. Don't fear man that can just kill you and be done. That's the worst he can do. Fear God that can, uh, after death, cast you into hell. God has authority over all things, including what happens to us after we die. So again, once again, Jesus is, is exposing the limitations of mankind. Mankind thinks that he or she has control of man by their being able to kill. But friend, that's an incomplete understanding of the world. Jesus makes it crystal clear that be it heaven or hell, there is an eternity on the other side of death. And mankind cannot touch that, no matter how much money or power he or she might have. 
And I think a wonderful example of this, of someone that understands this, of someone that is rehearsing the omniscience of God, someone that's rehearsing the fearfulness of God's authority, someone that is rehearsing God's love for them, someone that is pursuing the greater love and willing to take it all, someone that exemplifies this notion is a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp. He also, by the way, his story kind of teaches us about what happens in verses 11 to 12. But Polycarp was a guy that was discipled by somebody you might know. He was discipled by the Apostle John. Born in 70 AD, dies in 155 AD um, as a result of uh, some people in Rome killing him for his faith. And the story goes like this. Local men are in town of Smyrna. Uh, He's a pastor. Polycarp is a pastor there in Smyrna. uh, And they are fiercely loyal. These guys in Rome, are, or these guys in Smyrna are fiercely loyal to their pagan gods. And they don't like what's going on down there at the church at First Baptist Smyrna and Pastor Polycarp. And so what they figure they'll do is they'll go down the street and go kill him and that will decrease the witness, the influence that Christianity was having over their pagan gods. And so uh, eventually these guys find where Polycarp's staying. Polycarp opens the door. This is a true story. He comes in and they seize the guy that are going to get him. And Polycarp's first response is, well, listen, why don't you come in and have a meal together? So they do. They come inside and they eat and they drink. And then Polycarp says, well, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to pray for an hour too. And they're like, okay, go ahead. So they're listening to him pray, and some of the guys begin to have conversations with themselves, like, maybe we shouldn't kill this guy. Like, seems to be a pretty good dude. But nevertheless, they decide they're still going to do it. They carry him out of that house, and they carry him down the street. uh, And as they're carrying him down, all the mobs of these dudes that also don't like Polycarp and his Christianity, they start yelling and screaming at him. And in the midst of all of this, Polycarp hears somebody scream out, be strong and play the man. And it causes him to redouble his efforts. He's then carried before the governor. And Polycarp uh, is carried before that governor. And the governor asks him to deny his faith. I mean, we're right here in verses 8 down to 12. Same situation. Deny his faith. And Polycarp says, this is is verses 11 and 12 happening. Polycarp says in that moment, amidst the shouts of the people, amidst the governor telling him, he thinks he has the power to... Uh, his control over him in death. He says back, Polycarp says back, four score and six years have I served him and he has never done me injury. How can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Now that's amazing. There's evidence that Jesus' promise in verse 12 is right. But what's amazing, even more amazing, is what Polycarp does next. He then begins to evangelize the governor and he tells him, you need to repent because you're going to go to hell. Just the, this is a guy that understands the authority of God and that is captivated by the love of God, that fears God more than man. Well, the governor ignores his appeal. He sends Polycarp away. Polycarp is then tied to a wooden stake. Kindling is placed at his feet and he eventually dies because he loves God more than man. Polycarp, friend, found the secret by the grace of God, the secret of life. He feared God more than he feared man. He understood the authority of God more than he understood the authority of man. And because he did, he wasn't a hypocrite. And if he was here today, I think he would say with Paul that for me to live is Christ and die is gain. 
Man doesn't know all of our thoughts, all of our conversations. God does. And they will be revealed. Man doesn't have control over eternal life or death. God does. Fear him. Stand in awe of him. Worship him. Trust and treasure him. Rehearse his, God's omniscience. Rehearse his authority. And thirdly, rehearse the profundity of God's love for his children. The profundity, rehearse the profundity. This is how we grow in our fear for God. Rehearse the profundity, profound profundity of God's love for his children. Note first, look at verse four. Note first there that Jesus calls his disciples friends. And beloved, that's still true for you. Jesus says, I lay my life down for my friends. You, I now tell you my secrets because you're my friends. You're Jesus' friends if you're in Christ. And then he goes on to rehearse those beautiful words that many of us have heard so many times before in verse six and seven, are not some birds sold for a few pennies. And I love that word, underline that word forgotten. And not one of them is forgotten before God. Implication, you're not forgotten. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. And then he says, he just told fear him. Now he says, fear not. Did you catch that? You are more valuable than the sparrows. And then he goes on to say in verse eight, whoever acknowledges me before men, the son of man will acknowledge before the angel of heaven. So we are fearful of the greatness, the majesty, the authority, the might, the omniscience of God. And as we are, we don't need to fear when, all, when that God comes upon us because we're his children. We are Jesus' friends. We are spoken of in heaven right now. I'm acknowledging you before men. I trust that people are watching this, right? And as I'm doing this, Jesus is acknowledging me in heaven. We are not forgotten by God. Isn't that good to know in this COVID crisis or in whatever it is you're fearing? We are not forgotten. And because we are, because the reality is, the reason why is because we're more valuable to the God of the universe. How do we know that? Because he tells us. And secondly, we know that God is more, that we are more valuable to God because he sent his son to bring us home. God's steadfast, loyal, covenantal love and always and forever love pursues his children. He sees, he knows on the brightest day and the darkest night. And while it sometimes feels like he forgets us, it says right there, he doesn't forget the plight of parakeets. So, right? So he most certainly doesn't forget the plight of his people that he bought with his own blood. He will see us and use his authority for good. Beloved, you have never been loved like this by anyone else. I thought about this on whatever day, Thursday, when I was writing this sermon, and I was typing, and I looked out the window, and I saw birds just flying by. One tiny little bird sitting on a little electrical wire. And I thought about that. And you should do this too. This is the way we personalize the Lord. We grow in our fear for him. I saw that little bird and I started thinking, God knows what's going on with that little bird right there. That little bird. And I saw another one came and he flew over there. And another one flew by. God knows what's going on with that bird and that bird and that bird. How much more does he know what's going on with me? So hear the words, friends, of Polycarp's mentor. The Apostle John, when he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That is the fear of man. 
and that is the fear of God's punishment. Look what he says now. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in God. In other words, we don't fear God's punishment because Christ has been punished for us that believe. God's perfect love in Christ cast out our fear of the punishment of God. All those bad things Jesus is warning us of, they are get taken away because Jesus satisfied them on the cross. And now the only fear that's left for us for God is that awe of coming into his throne room, like that F-22. It is big, it is powerful, it is authoritative. For him, it is beautiful, it is glorious. And we come into his throne room and we bow. We hear the seeing angels sing. We see the brightness of his glory and we bow in awe as children that are known and loved and welcomed. We come as friends. Oh, beloved, as his perfect love casts out fear of punishment of God, fear of the punishment of man, Therefore, fear him and fear him not. Fear the greatness of his glory, but fear not his punishment. Fear the majesty, but fear not his acceptance and love of you. He has punished his son, beloved, so that you might be his son or daughter, that you might be his valuable possession. The more that we rehearse these realities, guys, the more that we rehearse the realities of God's omniscience, God's authority, God's love for us, the more that we will see these things in our heavenly Father, the more that we see them in our big brother Jesus, the more, Jesus says, we will not be hypocrites. The more we will speak truthfully of him in private rooms and in public. And we will do it with honesty and with courage because we love him so much. And we want other people, we want to love other people that they might know that love. But I need to address briefly here, friends, those of you that are unwilling to confess Christ. For those that verse 10 says, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says, you, friend, you will not be forgiven. And therefore, as it says in verse 5, you will be cast away forever from God to hell. And that's not my words. That's Jesus, the Son of God's words. Now, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit means to be settled that you intend to trust yourself. You intend to trust your good works, your good religion, your good intentions. You're trusting those in the face of the punishment of God. That's what it means to be settled that that's what you're going to trust. That's what it means to blaspheme. That you will not trust, trust and treasure Christ, but in its place you will trust, or, trust yourself, your good works, your good intentions, your life in that day of punishment. See, so the work of the Holy Spirit, friend, is to regenerate hearts from stop trusting self and to start trusting Jesus for salvation. Therefore, if you resist the Holy Spirit to do that, then you are trusting not in the Savior, but in yourself. Therefore, John 3.36 says, whoever does not obey the Son to trust, to repent and believe on Him, therefore the wrath of God remains on you. That's John 3.36. And that, by the way, is the conversation with Nicodemus about John 3.16, people know so well. And this, 
is God's justice, friend. This is not God's meanness. This is his justice on those that refuse to trust and treasure the blood of his only son that he sent to rescue you. Jesus says there in verse 10, 10 though, you need to know this. Listen to me. If you're struggling with this and you don't want to trust Jesus and maybe, you've, maybe you look back and you say, but I've blasphemed Jesus in the past. Look at verse 10. Jesus says it's not too late. You can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. You can have your sins forgiven and be brought into the forever love of God. Guys, you need to know, friend, this happened. This very verse uh, 10 happened to two of Jesus' greatest apostles, Peter and Paul. Peter is known for famously denying Christ, and he's forgiven. Paul is known for persecuting Christ, and he's forgiven. So it's not too late. Repent, trust Jesus. Both of those men escaped the wrath to come by their trusting Jesus to take their punishment away, that perfect love that casts out fear. And so, friend, I would plead with you this morning to trust and treasure Christ and not yourself. And if you want to do that and you say, yes, I need to do that. I've been trusting in myself too long. I need to trust Jesus to save me, to forgive me. Then listen, go call that person. Forget about the rest of the sermon. Go call the person that invited you to this live stream. And if you don't know, or if you don't have somebody to talk to about Christianity, then my contact information is on this page. Reach out to me and let's talk about it. But friend, you need to know life is short and hell is long. Weigh these things out. Don't put them off. Look to Jesus, confess Jesus. And finally, before we leave, let me just say a word to you, beloved. This uh, passage should cause us to be courageous, honest, and be instinctive to evangelize the lost. For those that, for those that are learning that we fear God more than man, we must be earnest in our evangelism. How many of us don't share the gospel because we fear man? This is teaching us, no, we've got to confess him in the face of the love and the fear of God. We've got to go confess him before man and come what may of us. We have to be earnest that this is true and go and appeal to people. How many of our friends have not heard an earnest appeal to the gospel because we're too fearful of them? This must not be. Speak of Christ, as Jesus says, before man. Acknowledge him before man by calling people to him. And listen, if you do, you don't have to fear. Again, look at verse 11 and 12. You don't need to fear. You don't need to be anxious. If at the worst case scenario, you're drugged before the President of the United States, you don't need to worry about it. The Spirit will take care of that. He'll tell you what you ought to say. And so therefore, what more confidence do we need in our evangelism? What more confidence do we need? with the knowledge that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Amen? Not us. Not your ability to know the Bible upright, left, right, and center. Or to know all of the apologetic answers. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. What more confidence do we need with that? And then secondly, the fact that Jesus has authority over death. And then thirdly, that others might be saved from hell. And then fourthly, that in the worst case scenario, the Spirit's going to take care of us. What more confidence do we need to speak the gospel to those that need it? And so in love, working from the gospel, go and acknowledge Christ before men. Do so knowing that as you do, Jesus acknowledges you in heaven. Beloved, need others less and love people more by speaking the gospel to them. Need others less 
Love people more by speaking the gospel to them as a response of Christ's love. And by doing so, you keep hypocritical Christianity out of this church and out of your own soul. And don't forget as you do that, Jesus has done this himself. What he has called you to do, he both has done himself and he empowers you to do. And so pray for one or two people this week. Call them up. Speak the truth of the gospel to them. And friend, if you're bored in Christianity, it's because you aren't taking any risks. So be risky. You want to waken up your Christianity? Go outside and tell some people about Jesus. Keep six feet from them, but tell them about Jesus, right? Your Christianity will go from bored to really exciting quick. But I implore all of us at this church, get in the game. Get in the game of testifying of Christ before our fellow man because we love him and we want to love our neighbors by speaking that truth to them in love. And by the grace of God, we create this culture of evangelism. We go out into the harvest fields, trusting and treasuring Christ because we believe that somebody's coming out. And as we do this, again, Christ acknowledges us. He loves us, not because we do that stuff, because he already loved us in his son. And also, hypocritical Christianity is kept out of our midst. And we will finally see the one of whom we love and speak of. So let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the ways that we love man more than you. Create in us an earnestness to fear you, to love you more than our love of man. And therefore, after doing that, lead us out into the harvest fields and may we see a reward of your people coming out because we are courageous, because we know that no matter what, you have authority over all things and your son is worth it. And we thank you that you love us the way that you love your son. Give us fruit in our evangelism as we learn to fear you. We pray in Jesus' name.